From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. This week on the podcast, we focus on the race for U.S. Senate between Republican incumbent John Cornyn and Democratic challenger M.J. Hagar. Then, Denton County Elections Administrator Frank Phillips joins us to discuss early voting turnout in the county, which has been among the highest in the state. NBC5 anchor Brian Curtis is in for Gromer this week. Brian and Julie Fine will talk to Cornyn and Hagar in separate interviews about why they should represent Texas in the U.S. Senate. In a Quinnipiac poll of likely voters released Wednesday, the headline was that President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden were tied at 47% in Texas. It showed a tightening of the race after Trump held a five-point lead in the September poll. But another key takeaway was in the U.S. Senate race. Cornyn held a six-point lead over Hagar after leading by eight points in Quinnipiac's last poll. Texas hasn't elected a Democrat to represent it in the U.S. Senate since Lloyd Benson in 1988. Cornyn was first elected in 2002 when he defeated former Dallas Mayor Ron Kirk. He won re-election by 12 points in 2008 and by 28 points in 2014. Now, facing a tighter race than he did six years ago, here's Senator Cornyn with Julian Bryan. First of all, Senator Cornyn, thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure. Let's begin with this. Why should voters send you back to Washington? What do you believe were your biggest accomplishments? Well, I've been proud of the recognition that I've gotten as one of the most effective members of the United States Senate by nonpartisan outside organizations, because I believe it's important to get things done, to actually be effective. I used to joke to people that when I came to the Senate, I thought that uh, all that was required is a fiery speech and voting no on everything. But uh, I quickly learned that building relationships, uh, even with people with dramatically different points of view, and, uh, and trying to find common ground, whether it's criminal justice reform, whether it's uh, anti-human trafficking uh, law, first in 25 years, creating a, essentially a crime victims compensation fund, uh, things like the, the rape kit backlog, or maybe natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey, where we uh, were able to get $30 billion in disaster relief for, for Texas. You can't do that uh, being new on the job. And I think that experience um, hopefully is, is seen as beneficial to the people of Texas. I think it is. Senator, you recently said that you have disagreed privately with President Trump on some things like border security and, and the trade wars. Why not make those positions more public so that Texans know exactly where you stand on these issues? Well, Brian, I can understand why the press would love for me to get into a public fight with the president every time we had a disagreement, but I've actually found it to be more effective having those conversations in private. For example, when, uh, when the president decided to pull all our troops out of Syria, uh, some of my colleagues and I visited with him privately, uh, persuaded him to leave a, a, some vestige of that force there and discussed with him the importance of the American presence there, even though it was relatively small. Didn't seem like maybe a big thing, but as you recall, we were able to defeat ISIS in its entirety. The Middle East is a real a bottle of scorpions. And I think that was an example where I was able to, to help him make a better decision by having a conversation in private. Uh, we know that uh, some of the more uh, celebrated Incidents where the president gets into a fight publicly with people on Twitter, th those don't usually end well. So I think it's actually better for the 29 pe million people I'm privileged to represent to handle it the way I've described. 
Senator, more than 220,000 Americans have died here from COVID-19. Do you feel that the administration has done enough and what needs to be done to get this virus under control? Well, we haven't had anything like this for maybe a hundred years since the great uh, flu uh, crisis back in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, so nobody really saw this coming, but in these particular, in these polarized political times, I think everybody wants to play the blame game. I understand that. When President Trump cut off flights from Wuhan province in China in January, he was called a racist and a xenophobe. Well, it turns out that was a pretty good call. Nancy Pelosi and Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, said uh, went to their respective Chinatowns and they said, you know, we're open for business. There's no problem here. But to tell you the truth, Julie, our understanding of this virus has evolved over time. You remember when Dr. Fauci in the Center for Disease Control said masks were useless. And then they changed their guidance in April and we were all wearing masks and social distancing. I don't again say that to point the finger of blame at them. I'm just saying we're learning as we go. And fortunately, uh, our doctors are learning how to treat patients and save lives in the process. But none of us have been through something like this before, but Congress has appropriated 3.8 trillion dollars in relief. And I think we need to do more, which is very frustrating when Nancy Pelosi said nothing is better than something. I always thought that something was better than nothing, but that's where we are. Senator, do you believe that the Democrats are fully to blame that you haven't gone far enough in terms of getting a relief package done? Well, you know, the first four bills were bipartisan, almost unanimous. It was really pretty impressive. Uh, It made me proud. After huge disasters like 9-11, you know, we tend to rally together as a country, and that's a good thing. But here, the closer we got to the election, the more political it became. And I think Speaker Pelosi just decided she wasn't going to give the president any more wins. I I hate the fact that she would view it that way, because I think the losers are the people who still need the help, who through no fault of their own, as you point out, find themselves either uh, fearful of contracting the virus or, uh, you know, economically struggling. Senator, we've seen these stories about Leader McConnell telling Republicans that he is encouraging the White House to wait until after the election to do another COVID-19 relief plan. Do you agree with that strategy? Well, I would say those reports are at odds with what we've actually done. We've actually voted on half a trillion dollars in additional relief. That's what I just described when Speaker Pelosi said that's not enough money. Well, it's a pretty good start. And uh, once we get a bill on the floor, it can be um, amended, added to, subtracted to. But what she did is she passed a partisan $3 trillion additional spending bill, which included things like tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires in New York and San Francisco. Those weren't, that's not the kind of thing we ought to be doing uh, during a a pandemic like this. So we're willing to, to, to do a lot Uh, But we want to make sure it's targeted and will be effective. But I think Speaker Pelosi has been playing a game of cat and mouse with uh, with Republicans in the Senate and acting like she wants to do something while doing very little. Senator, before we let you go, a quick question here regarding the election. We're seeing record turnout here in Texas. Are you how do you think that affects Republicans running? Yeah, I think these numbers are incredible. Um, the, uh, of course, we saw that in the midterm with Senator Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, 8.3 million. I don't know what the final numbers will be this election, but we're projecting maybe 11 million could go up to 12 million people. 
a lot of new folks moving to Texas, a lot of outside money coming into the state. It's really like we have never seen before. And you've seen some of those numbers. It really is uh, changing the nature of these elections. But what I'm trying to do is make sure we don't let people from California and New York change who we are. Uh, our formula in Texas, the Texas model that Governor Perry and others used to talk about actually works. That's why we were so prosperous. Our economy was doing so well while people voted with their feet and came from places like California to Texas to find their work and pursue their dreams. That's who we are as a state. And I think there are a lot of political actors, whether it's Chuck Schumer in New York, who recruited my opponent and bankrolled her primary and now uh, helping her again substantially $15 million in the general election. Um, that there are a lot of people on the outside see this as sort of a pawn in a national power game, but we need to stop them. And I, as I've said to others, I'm not going to let it happen on my watch. Senator Cornyn, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Senator. Great to be with you both. Thanks so much. Hagar ran for Texas's 31st congressional district two years ago, but lost to incumbent John Carter. Then she turned her attention to challenging Cornyn. The Dallas Morning News reports a super PAC last week spent millions of dollars on TV ads in support of Hagar, coinciding with a fundraising advantage over the incumbent in the first two weeks of October. Hagar is an Air Force veteran who served three tours in Afghanistan and was awarded the Purple Heart in 2009. Here she is with Julian Bryant. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Julie. Let's begin with this. Why should Texans send you to Congress? Well, you know, John Cornyn's had 18 years. Um, he, a third of that time, he had the majority in the House and Senate, and he had the White House. And he's been promising us the same things since he ran in 2002 when I voted for him. Um, he said he wanted to close the gun show loophole. He wanted to pass the citizenship. He, you know, thought that Roe v. Wade was the law of the land and, and was precedent that couldn't be overturned. And since then, he you know, has been completely ineffective in fighting for Texans. The entire time he's been in office, we have been in 50th place and dead last for access to health care. And yet he has been fighting to tear down the Affordable Care Act, which actually helped us. You know, we went from one out of four of us without access to health care. After the Affordable Care Act, one out of five of us, still the worst in the country, but a little better. And he is just continually trying to rip apart the Affordable Care Act because he's received nearly $2 million from the, uh, from the insurance industry. But it's not enough that I'm not him, but that's why we really need to give somebody else a chance. I actually have the right type of experience to serve Texas. I have served my country in uniform. I grew up here. I have worked in healthcare for five years. I have you know, worked in tech and, and I think we need to bring a little bit of business experience and a little servant leadership and some integrity um, to DC because we, we just have too many career politicians and not enough working moms and, and, and badass Texans. Let's talk about COVID-19 and the pandemic. We still don't have a second relief package. What should a second relief package look like and how should the pandemic be managed at this point? Well, John Cornyn over the summer said unemployment insurance was a mistake and that he didn't see a sense of urgency for a second stimulus. Um, I think that the fumbled handling of this pandemic is one of many reasons why we need to unseat him. Um, I'm not seeing any crisis management. The best thing we can do for our economy is get the public health aspect of this pandemic under control. Um, so what we need is, you know, well, first of all, our broken healthcare system is part of why we can't get this pandemic under control because with so few people with access to care, people can't go and get a test if they can't afford it. 
Um, so we need widespread free access to testing. We need to fix our healthcare system. We need contact tracing. We need to protect frontline workers. Um, we have hospital workers that I've been talking to um, this week that are buying their own PPE. We just need to do a better job of leading and, and stop spreading misinformation and saying things that are politically convenient and actually start leading and take action to get this pandemic under control. There's been some tension between you and Senator Royce West, and many of your opponents from the primary chose to back West in the runoff. What does that say about your ability to get along with members of your own party? You know, Julie, it's never been a strength of mine to do the politics of politics. I'm not a politician. Um, there's a lot involved with personal endorsements, and all I can tell you is that all of us realize that there is too much on the line to make this about personalities. Th this race is not about me. It's not about Royce. It's not even about John Cornyn. It's about the kids we still have in cages or the kids that are separated from their families. It's about the people without access to health care. It's about the communities getting pummeled by hurricanes. Um, it's about the gun violence epidemic. We really need to start looking at some common sense gun safety legislation. I'm a gun owner. We can do that while protecting our Second Amendment rights. We just need to be more pragmatic, and there's too much on the line right now. Um, people like uh, Christina Ramirez have... Um, you know, come out and, and, and endorsed and, and spoken at town halls. Um, you know, Senator West has shown his support now. So um, I, I really feel like, um, you know, I'm used to standing around the mission planning table as a combat helicopter pilot with people who some of them didn't even think I should be in the room because I was a woman, right? And I'm used to being able to put aside differences and focus on the mission. And I am not seeing enough of that in DC. People that can put their differences aside, focus on the mission, stop worrying about their own self-interest and their own you know, personalities and egos and really focus on what it is we're trying to accomplish. You talk a lot about healthcare and we know that is a critical issue with so many voters. You say the system is broken. What mm -hmm. in your mind is the solution here? Well, I worked in healthcare for five years. Um, the system is broken. It, it, the short answer is the system is broken because so many people don't have access that the, the people who do have access to healthcare coverage are paying for the care for everybody who comes into the hospital without access to a, a, an ability to pay, right? So it's sky high costs. People are seeking care in the most expensive place and they can't go and, and see a general practitioner for that preventative care. Um, it's also, you know, a, a human rights issue. I mean, it, 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 we should be giving people access to healthcare. But I don't think that the answer is to um, have a, a single provider, you know, like the, the way that John Cornyn pretends that the healthcare model that I support would be some kind of government-run healthcare. I've been under government-run healthcare. I was in the military. I am not advocating for that model. What I am advocating for is more along the lines of what I had when I was in the guard when I had TRICARE, which is basically military Medicare. So knowing that that was the most superior care I ever received, and I've, I've had it all, I've had you know military, I've had private insurance, um, I want everyone to have access to Medicare through a public option. I also think that that would, you know, the, 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 the employer provided model is such a barrier to small business creation because people are afraid to leave their salary job to go start a small business because they don't want to leave behind their benefits. So access to a public option is important. However, I have received healthcare in a setting where I didn't have choice and I will never vote for or support a healthcare model that does not protect our right to choose what that access to healthcare looks like. Working with Senator Ted Cruz. I think I'm gonna be able to work with him very well. Um, you know, when I went to DC as a private citizen, taking time off of work to try to open jobs for women in the military, um, I was able to build a broad bipartisan coalition of Republicans and Democrats. 
And, you know, John Cornyn is answerable to his corporate donors and he does as he's told by his party leaders. But my sense from Ted Cruz is that he, he doesn't like doing as he's told. He, he does what he thinks is right. I disagree with him on some of the things that he thinks are right, but I think we can go and have conversations about what's right for Texas. And if I can show him how my plans and my, my vision for our state um, are gonna be good for our constituents, then I think I can, I can work with him. I actually think that, you know, I, I don't wanna speak for him, but I would imagine the short amount of time that he's been there compared to John Cornyn, he's not happy with the fact that Texas is last in the nation for access to care. So, you know, he stood with Kirsten Gillibrand um, to support the Military Justice Improvement Act. I'm sure he was told not to do that. Um, and that gives me hope that, that he will be somebody that I can work with. We've seen these massive early voting numbers here in Texas. It's been great to see. Do you think that favors Democrats or Republicans? I think it favors democracy. I think it favors Texas. I don't really know um, who it favors, but I'm so excited to see it because I grew up here and I have not seen anything like this. You know, the, the, the number of people getting civically engaged, not just voting, but, but um, volunteering for campaigns and things like that. The more people who take part in our democracy, the healthier that democracy is. And so I'm really excited to see that. That's the only way Texans can ensure that our voices are heard and that our interests are protected in D.C. MJ Hagar, candidate for U.S. Senate, thanks so much for joining us. Early voting in Texas runs through October 30th. Election Day is November 3rd. Speaking of early voting, the early voting numbers in the Lone Star State have been high, as they have been in many parts of the country. And one of the counties that has seen among the largest increases is right here in North Texas. Through 10 days of early voting, Denton County has seen about a 30% increase in the number of people who voted early compared to 2016, and has already doubled the number of mail-in ballots it received with a week to go. Denton County Elections Administrator Frank Phillips joins Julie to discuss the county's surge in numbers. Frank Phillips, Denton County Elections Administrator, thanks so much for being with us today for the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Frank, let's talk about your numbers. I mean, they're high. They're really high. Were you prepared for it and were you expecting this? We were actually. Uh, we, we've been planning for this election for over a year. And we, in anticipa anticipation of such a high turnout, we doubled our early voting sites and we took advantage of every hour that we could be open, we're open. We're open seven to seven, Monday through Saturday and 11 to four on Sunday. We want to give everybody ample opportunity to show up, and that's paid off for us. So, Frank, I'm curious as to why. Why were you so prepared? Why did you know that this wave was coming this year? Well, I've, I've been paying attention for the last four years, and, you know, everybody's just been on fire, regardless of your political persuasion. You just knew this was going to be a hot election. What are you doing in terms of safety out there? I mean, are people concerned in line, do you feel like? Because I know you can't force people to wear masks, but you can ask them to wear masks. Correct? Right, and we do. We, we highly recommend it. We provide masks and face shields and all of the sanitary products for our poll workers. But we do get complaints, and not many, but we do get complaints about both poll workers and voters not wearing masks. So how do you manage that? That's always a very delicate thing. It is. At the end of the day, I just refer them to the governor's order. It's really about all I can do. Frank, looking ahead to election night, what's your biggest concern? You know, 
my biggest concern is that regardless of the outcome, whatever side you're on, that the outcome's accepted and everything is peaceful. That's my biggest wish, but it wraps around my biggest concern. Are you thinking because there have been so many voters in early voting that election day will be as busy as usual? Or do you think since it's spread out over three weeks, it won't be? I think we're going to be surprised and it's it's going to be surprisingly low key. I mean, as we stand today, I'm almost, almost at 50% of my registered voters have already voted. And I still have another week to go of our vote. So I suspect that on election day, it's going to be, uh, while busy, it's almost going to be light because we do have so many election day polling sites. We've got 156 sites. That's more than we've ever had. So I, I think it'll, uh, it'll make for a pleasant election day voting experience, hopefully without the lines that we sometimes experience in an election like this. Yeah, and I think we all hope so. I mean, that was the goal in, you know, extending the early voting period. Um, Frank, in terms of the actual process at this point, just kind of walk us through what you guys are actually doing. We're, we're talking about, you know, we got people voting by mail, we've got people absentee voting, people voting in person. How does it work at this point in terms of tabulating the ballots? Well, you hit the nail on the head. Everything's going on at once right now. Mail ballots are huge for us now. In 2016, we received a total of a little over 12,000 mail ballots. And so far this year, we've mailed out over 35,000 and received 23,000 back. So that kind of at the moment is what is all encompassing in our office right now is the return of mail ballots. Uh, our early voting ballot board is already meeting to start processing those return mail ballots to verify their signatures and to uh, make sure that those ballots are countable. But we won't actually be able to tabulate those until election day. But that's what we're going to spend the next few days doing is getting everything ready for election day. And that will include all of our votes that come in from early voting and the votes are going to come in election night. So it's all encompassing now, but we are prepared and trudging through it. It's just amazing to see these numbers, right? I mean, it, it's what it's all about. And congratulations to you guys, because I know that like on a percentage basis, you guys are at the, at the top of the heap across the entire state of Texas at this point, right? Right. And, you know, I remember saying after 2016, you know, we'll never see another election like that. And now look at us now. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Well, Frank, we know you're busy, so thanks for taking your time out to join us on the podcast, and hopefully we will get with you again and at some point see you in person. Right, exactly. That does it for us this week. Thanks to Senator John Corden, MJ Hagar, and Frank Phillips for joining us. Stick with NBC5 and NBCDFW.com ahead of Election Day for everything you need to know about Texas politics. We'll talk to you next week.